Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us. It is Thursday, the 18th of August. We have lots to get to today, but we are starting with some new numbers that were released just earlier today, taking a look at what's happening at BC Ferries. And safe to say, things are looking up. Richard Zussman joins us now, Global News Journalist based at the Legislature. Richard, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for doing this. I know you're talking about this. We'll also touch on job action that we're seeing by the BCGEU and some other potential job action that's coming uh, for BC. But let's start with BC Ferries and these new numbers released earlier today and some big increases when we're talking about traffic, revenue, earnings. Yeah, so these numbers look at April 1st to June 30th of this year. So for the first three months of the fiscal year, vehicle traffic went up 42%, passenger traffic up 74% compared to the same time period a year ago. And this three-month interval marks the highest first quarter ever for vehicle traffic. So we have seen a substantial increase for those riding BC ferries. Uh, It also marks a substantial increase, not just during the COVID period, but even pre-COVID. And this comes at a time where we know that the corporation is struggling. Uh, They've made a change at the top in terms of their CEO. Uh, They are now searching for a new CEO with an interim CEO in place. Uh, And we've also had those cancellations due to staffing issues. So uh, to manage through to see these sort of numbers, it shows a type of resilience for ferries, but it will also lead, I think, to customers, especially those on the lesser served routes, you know, sort of scratching their heads a little bit thinking, well, you know, you're doing so great with revenues. uh, Why can't you plunk some of this money back into the system uh, to help ensure that, you know, uh, there's more stability there uh, in terms of in terms of cancellations and and, uh, route completion? Right. And that was one of my first thoughts looking at this as well. And I know there was a question or some questions put to the interim president and CEO, Jill Charland, exactly about that. People on Bowen Island saying the ferries are often late. Some of the more northern routes, people asking about those cancellations and crewing issues. Was an answer given or was any explanation given as to why, if they're having such a a good year, why that's still happening? Yeah, so I think the the messaging is they are struggling with staffing like we're seeing globally. We've seen these pretty consistent trends here, Jill, throughout the sort of travel economy where uh, these providers are having a hard time keeping staffing up and that is leading uh, to challenges with the services that they're delivering. And there is a commitment here uh, from Jill Charland and BC Ferries to do better, but they need to ensure that the staffing levels get back to some sense of normalcy. And we're still seeing people out due to COVID. We are still seeing uh, a challenge in terms of long-term uh, employment. We saw retirements in the pandemic. We saw people move on from the company, just like we've seen in a lot of other sectors, and replacing that is challenging. It'll be curious to see the numbers as they play out through the summer months, because that's where we've seen a lot of that really intense pressure. At one point on Monday, Jill, the online booking system for BC Ferries broke down uh, because there was so much pressure on it for people uh, traveling. So all of that um, you know, puts pressure on the new interim CEO, but there is a commitment there and has been pretty consistent to do better.
Uh, You mentioned as well, looking for that new CEO. So what does this tell us about the departure of the CEO? If the company was doing so well and he was still shown the door and will receive a very healthy severance package, that this was perhaps uh, purely a political move? Yeah, so I think there's a part of this, and we have seen a growing conflict between uh, the government and the way that BC Ferries operates. And it's no secret that the BC NDP has been interested for a while here to tinker with the way in which ferries operates. And we know that, you know, Mark Collins had not made a whole lot of friends uh, within the current uh, government apparatus. And uh, I think the prevailing sense uh, from Victoria is that, you know, this was something done that was politically motivated to press the reset on an organization uh, that was seemingly on the brink of losing public confidence. You know, I don't, I don't know, Jill, if always government getting involved increases public confidence in things. But <laughs> I think in this situation, uh, they want to send a message that uh some of the service delivery issues have been unacceptable, but also there's been issues beyond that internally around the way the inner workings of the corporation and government is trying to reset the tone first uh, with putting Joy McPhail in place as the chairman of the board and now uh, moving on to this recruitment to find uh, a new face to run the organization. I know it's not um, totally the same, but there are parallels here between what happened in TransLink you know, I can't remember, you and I both covered it a lot at the time, what, five, six years ago when we were seeing system shutdowns and TransLink. We had that period of time over six months where there were the system-wide SkyTrain problems, Mm -hmm. and then they made a significant change there at CEO. And in part, that helped restore um, consumer confidence uh, in the system. And, you know, there are differences here, but there are also a lot of similarities. And I think government saw this as an opportunity to to press the reset and and try to create a new culture and, and get people to feel confident that when they're riding BC ferries, their ferry will arrive on time. They won't have these, you know, long, long waits and, and there won't be system crashes when they're trying to, to make changes or, or book a trip. And there won't be, uh, like clockwork, a ferry that goes out of service on the Thursday or Friday before a long (laughs) weekend. a long weekend. And I think that's the thing that causes the most stress. You know, living on the island, having to rely on coming to the mainland by ferries, that is one of the great worries. And and I know we haven't seen huge disruptions on Swartz Bay to Tawasin, but there have been huge delays at times in terms of multiple sailing weights. And, you know, it, 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 it adds extra anxiety for people who are trying to plan, you know, not just vacations, but the necessity of life. You know, those who live on the Gulf Islands who count on coming to Victoria for doctor's appointments. And we see that throughout the network. And there needs to be reliability there, just like for TransLink and SkyTrain, that people rely on these services to just go about the daily functions of life. All right. So that's what's happening with BC Ferries. Richard, I know you're also looking at BCGEU job action today. We actually have a cannabis store owner coming on a bit later in the program to talk about concerns there about being able to get product. We've heard from restaurant owners saying they too have concerns about this. What do we know at this point about continued job action or what's happening with that? Yeah, so we'll have lots of coverage on this tonight on the news hour as well. Kylie Stanton, my colleague, will cover on the cannabis side. I'm going to be chatting with some of the other big unions because we've seen over the last few days 
that leadership from the nurses union, uh, from the hospital employees union, from the teachers union have been on the front lines with the BCGU. Uh, they are very much in support of this cost of living increase. The reason why the other unions are important is they are in negotiations now as well. And they are going to be wanting these protections around cost of living. And that's going to put a lot of pressure on government. And the question is, could we see down the road a teacher strike? Could we see down the road um, a nurse's strike? All of that, again, will have a tremendous disruption in the day-to-day -day lives of British Columbians. For what we're seeing right now for the BCGU, um, we haven't seen empty shelves quite yet, but we are hearing, like you said, from restaurants, from private liquor stores, that they are um, experiencing some challenges getting the product they need. And a lot of them have extra supply, but we may eventually see restaurants buy product in bulk, that will put pressure on supplies and then that potentially could lead to a domino around bulk buying uh, and panic buying from customers as well as from businesses. And, and that's all because there are four distribution sites, two in Metro Vancouver, one in Canlis, one in Victoria, that are currently behind picket lines. And the union saying, Joe, that they will be behind picket lines until a deal is reached and we are still a long, long ways uh, from a deal here, I think, between the union and the province. Unless some miracles reached, we're still a long ways away at this point. All right. Look forward to your reports later today. Richard, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Have a good day. Well, let's take a look at what is happening with businesses in this province and in this country. We have been told from the federal government, numbers with the government show that business insolvencies have been on an upward trend since about middle 2021. But there is a new report that has just been released by the Canadian Federation of Independent Business taking a look at small business insolvency. So what did those numbers tell us? Well, joining us to talk more about this is Annie Dorman. BC Provincial, Provincial Affairs Director at CFIB. Annie, thank you so much for being here. Oh, always great to be on the show, Joe. What do your numbers show then as far as insolvencies and what we're seeing with small businesses in BC? Well, definitely, unfortunately, what we are seeing across the province here and really a trend really across the entire country right now is that unfortunately, um, you know, during a summer that all small businesses and business owners were hoping for a big economic recovery, however, have been dealt a swath of other challenges, including a lot of the COVID-19 support programs ending, which unfortunately is leading to this trend of, of bankruptcies and insolvencies. So we are seeing an increase in the number in comparison to 2021 here, which is really, really quite alarming. And when we look at those numbers as well, I know your report also looked at the number of companies that actually file for bankruptcy. It doesn't actually match those that close. That's exactly what we're seeing. And, and to be perfectly honest, we don't have, you know, a really concrete answer as to why we are seeing it. But from our own um, survey data from our members, uh, those that are deciding to unfortunately having to completely close their business only around uh, nearly 9%, 10% of them are actually going toward the bankruptcy route. 36% um, uh, of them are designed to transfer or sell to another business or a new owner, while 30% are deciding to just outright permanently close the business. So while we don't have a firm answer as to, you know, the reasoning behind all these trends, it is definitely something we are tracking and watching quite closely. Could it be what everything that goes along with, with filing for bankruptcy and, and kind of the, the intricacies of that, that somebody looks at that compared to winding things down or moving on and decides to go that route instead? 
Yeah, it could definitely be that. It could, you know, be the broader economic conditions right now, interest rates, of course, all of that could definitely come into play on how a business a business owner decides to uh, close their business permanently. And, and did you look at the types of businesses or maybe those that were more vulnerable or we're seeing more shutting down or bankruptcies? Well, definitely, unfortunately, this is a trend that we have seen, you know, throughout uh, the entire pandemic is really, again, those in the hospitality, arts and recreation industries that were most hardest hit from the uh, from the pandemic and having the toughest time, I would have to say, bouncing back into economic recovery. Um, those are the types of businesses that, unfortunately, we are seeing an increase in the number of insolvencies and bankruptcies. And how are things looking then as well? We know that there were a lot of uh, subsidies. There was uh, government financial help during the pandemic. That was all focused on helping businesses stay open. How has that kind of impacted businesses as far as their debt levels and where they're at financially now? Oh, definitely. I mean, of course, there's no amount of government funding that can really make a business completely whole uh, following the pandemic and just, of course, the amount of revenue losses um, that they suffered. But, you know, to simply carry on and not close their business, many, many businesses simply had to accumulate debt. Now, unfortunately, again, just because of the slow rates of economic recovery, uh, businesses have have had a hard time paying that back or slow to pay that back. Um, our own survey data shows that nearly 60% of BC small businesses are still carrying pandemic-related debt. So what would you like to see or are there things that could be done to help businesses out? Well, definitely we're calling on all levels of government, uh, you know, including the federal government of extending uh, the repayment of the Canadian Emergency Business Account Loan, increasing that forgivable portion are some actions, as well as here in the province. Um, We reiterate our calls for uh, the provincial government to, you know, use all the tools in their toolkit as well uh, to help businesses right now, including uh, helping businesses um, with education property taxes, um, looking at, um, you know, refunding some, if not all, of WorkSafe DC's surplus rebate. All of these actions should be looked upon by the provincial government to help businesses right now. And I know you've called for that or something similar to that in the past. Did you get a response to that request? No, I, I, it appears WorkSafe BC continues to, uh, to sit on this large surplus. Um, our recent uh, figures in the recent annual report actually shows that it's now a $3.4 billion surplus. Um, definitely, you know, we, we continue our call to action for WorkSafe BC to provide some cost relief to business owners on that front. And uh, it's got to be tough as well. And certainly we've been talking to business owners today, uh, specifically in BC, uh, restaurant owners, uh, cannabis shop owners that are dependent on those, uh, the BC government, the distribution centers that are now in some cases behind picket lines, uh, which doesn't seem like, I mean, not that it would ever be a good time, but it uh, seems like they're kind of, uh, those that are getting caught up in this, the businesses are being hurt more just as they're trying to, to kind of build back. Oh my goodness! I, I feel I feel for all business owners right now. It seems to be uh, you know one thing after another. Of course, you know COVID nineteen being able to operate fully, being dealt with uh, inflation, cost pressures, continued labor shortages, and of course now unfortunately um, the strike impacting uh, the distribution of liquor products to to our hospitality restaurants and bars. Yeah, definitely going to be following that quite closely. We are hearing businesses are starting to get quite fearful 
saying that they only have six days of products. Um, I, you know, I hope that a solution can come forward. And if this is prolonged, then the government should start to look at perhaps uh, other ways to ensuring products can get back to our bars and restaurants to uh, to close out the summer, busy summer months here and ensure their operations can continue. Right. And um, any one other thing, and you kind of touched on this, but on, on that list of things that businesses were asking for, uh, bringing in that, that promised reduction when it comes to credit card fees, particularly for small merchants, how big of an impact or how much, how big of a deal would that be if those fees were reduced? Well, definitely, you know, we, we continue to hear from businesses just the amount of fees associated with credit cards. And I mean, of course, the pandemic, I mean, we can all see no one pays by cash really anymore. It's all by credit card or debit card, Interact, all those types of things. So it would definitely be, a, you know, a helpful cost relief right now. And I would have to say any little bit of help, any little bit of cost relief will, could go a long way for business, uh, small business recovery. All right, Annie, always good to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Of course, anytime, Jill. Well, today, Thursday, August 18th, is Burgers to Beat MS Day. It is the 14th year in a row we have had this fundraiser. That means for every teen burger sold at ANW, $2 will be donated to the Multiple Sclerosis Society of Canada. And joining us once again to talk about this, soccer great Christine Sinclair. Christine, thank you so much for making the time once again. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, I know we've talked about it before, the importance of fundraising, the importance of finding a cure for this disease that affects so many Canadians. Uh, Can you talk a little bit and remind people again why this is so close to your heart? Yeah, I mean, obviously this is, like you said, a cause Close to my heart, uh, my mom was diagnosed with MS 40 years ago and then unfortunately passed away earlier this year due to complications from MS. So it, it, it's something that's near and dear to, to my family, uh, trying to raise awareness of the disease, raise some money, and uh, hopefully find a future where you know families don't have to go through what, what my family has gone through in recent years. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that as well. And uh, having lost my sister to MS, uh, I know how difficult uh, it is and, and watching that happen to somebody. So, Christine, I'm so sorry to hear about that. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, you have been uh, tireless, well, in so many things that uh, you've done in your life and uh, fundraising for this uh, being one of them. How have you seen things change as far as uh, your mom lived with that diagnosis for so many years, uh, as far as treatments and, and research and and trying to find a pre- preventative way of stopping this and uh, trying to find a cure? Yeah, you know, um, like you said, unfortunately, my mom was diagnosed uh, many years ago, and uh, you know, back then there there weren't many treatments, um, and I'm glad to say that things have have started to change, and now there are treatments out there that are, you know, able to slow the disease down. Unfortunately, there's still no known uh, cause um, and no known reason why Canadians are, you know, have one of the highest rates in the world. Um, but things are changing even from, you know, when my mom was alive, um, just the programs and the support that is available now um, compared to at least what I was I remember when I was a kid uh, in terms of su- support for my mom. And I find that MS, it's often a disease that people suffer uh, through alone and in, and in silence. And I know that was the case with my mom and being a part of 
being a part of this has really helped form a community. And I realized that my family were not alone. There's others, even I have good friends with parents with MS that I never knew. So it's, it's been helpful to know that, yeah, you're not alone in this fight. Exactly. And I've even talking to people and I've met people over the years as well who've really tried to keep it hidden or keep it secret and not wanting to talk about it or or really do feel alone. So I I get what you're saying there. It does make such a difference if you have that community and and you're able to kind of get that that support as well. Uh, Very interesting, like you said, too, the, the diagnosis and what your mom would have been told when she was diagnosed, what my sister was told when she was diagnosed, so different. Do, Do you get the sense that even while we are still fighting to find that cure and to figure out why this disease affects so many Canadians, uh, affects women three times more likely than men, uh, that people are given at least a more positive message as far as dealing with it and treating it? Yeah, I mean, at least the the people that I've met throughout the course of this, uh, it seems more and more now when they're diagnosed, it's not quite the like sentence that it was for my mom, I'd say. Um, now people are, are able to live with the disease. Um, obviously, it affects everyone differently. So, I mean, you do have other cases for sure. But more and more, I'm hearing stories of people that are able to, to live with the disease. They've slowed the, pro- the progression down. People bike riding, like, you know, just like, obviously, it impacts your life, but not as like drastically as it did my mom, um, just because there's there's better treatments now. And events like this one or fundraisers like this one uh, that A&W does every year, and uh, like I said, this is the 14th year in a row. Uh, how important is that to to get people kind of involved, to get people talking about this and keeping it front and center so people know that this is still a disease that needs this money? Yeah, I think, I mean, first and foremost, this is the biggest fundraiser, corporate fundraiser for the MS Society of Canada. So it is massive for them. Um, but I think in terms like, it's just for me, it's about awareness. Um, I think a lot of people have heard of MS or, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Um, but <clears throat> there's not a lot known about the disease. And that's part of the goal, at least for me within this campaign, is to bring awareness to the to this disease, to bring awareness to Canadians, you know, <clears throat> realizing that we do have one of the highest rates in the world for for some reason. So it's how can we bring that awareness to the country and how can we raise money and really, really make a difference. And I would imagine, too, that you have spent so many years doing this and raising this awareness and talking about it on Burgers to Beat MS Day. Uh, is it something then I would think your mom must have been very proud and very happy that you were doing this when she was here, that you'll you'll keep doing it kind of as a legacy for your mom? Oh, for sure. I mean, <clears throat> I remember the first year I had to ask her permission because <laughs> um, it, it, it's ultimately her story that I'm telling and... I remember after the first year, she she just said it's the most proud she's ever been of me. So, you know, obviously this year's this year's a tough one, um, but absolutely this this will be something I'll carry on forever. Um, you know, tr- tr- truly trying to change people's lives uh, in my you know a legacy for my mom and really trying to impact Canadians and make a difference.
All right. Well, Christine, thank you so much. I know it's also a really busy day for you. So thank you so much for joining us once again to talk about this. And uh, and thanks. And hopefully people get out there and we'll tell everybody exactly how to share on social media and to try and raise as much money as we can. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me and covering this. I really appreciate it.